0: Field podcast On the Blood Red channel, bringing you the best tactical and statistical analysis of Liverpool FC.
1: Hello and welcome to Analyse and Anfield, this week's Analyse and Anfield. Mo, I'm joined by you as always, mate. It is a rainy
0: day. It is a rainy day. <laughs> if people who can't see what your hoodie looks like can't tell. But... Um, Yeah, it's kind of that period of the year, isn't it, where you wake up and it's already raining and it makes you feel a little bit grim. And you come in here and you want to talk about a game and it's almost like, well, we didn't win, so maybe there's that grimness fills in the disappointment. we know better than that. There's, there's good and bad in everything, and I think we're going to be able to find both in this one.
1: Yeah, well, apologies to uh, to the people who are watching on YouTube because I, I'm not actually wearing a polka dot hoodie. <laughs> it just looks like that because I'm absolutely soaked. Um, but this is the dedication that we've... This is the commitment that we've made, hey. made coming to the office again. And you know what? We're
0: going to see the benefits of that
1: commitment in <laughs> the next 30 or 40 minutes. Yeah, I hope so. Um, I'm for that 30 and 40 minutes. Um, We can go in a few different directions really, can't we? We're obviously going to touch on Brighton, a few talking points around that. Uh, I think Alexis McAllister is a bit of a talking point at Mm -hmm. the minute. And then I think it also gives us a bit of scope now to to kind of reflect on the season so far and um, obviously international break at the minute, you know, where do Liverpool stand, where do our rivals stand and things like that. So yeah, we can definitely get into that but in terms of the Brighton game, obviously we previewed it last week, what did you think?
0: I think it was fascinating how many of the things that we said were going to happen happened. (laughs) Like we mentioned a lot about press baiting and about how both teams want to do it and it was almost going to be uh, who was going to be able to blink first. Well literally we both blinked because three of the four goals came from exactly that but the way that we did it I wasn't quite expecting in terms of the kind of narrow diamond system that we used and We've seen Liverpool use diamonds before but this was a little bit different because rather than having like central midfielders on either side, uh, we had wingers. Well, Harvey Elliott is technically was playing as a midfielder but he's got like forwards instincts. So it was a slightly different way of doing it and for a while it was weird because Brighton clearly weren't expecting it and we got a lot of joy out of it. But then as the game went on, you could see that they were starting to enforce their will upon us. And then it almost flipped. I'd say around 67, maybe 25 minutes ago, Brighton was starting to impose their will on us and we weren't really able to deal with it in quite as good a way. And again, you get a situation where both teams felt like they probably should have capitalised more when they were on top and both would come away thinking, we probably could have won that game, but neither did.
1: Yeah, it was a, it was a difficult game to analyse, to be honest. Um, we will touch you on a diamond in a sec. But in terms of, like, the the makeup of the game, particularly in the first half, I thought we were... I thought, personally, that we showed them too much respect, almost, mm-hmm. um, to the extent where, like, at switched at the half-time, actually, that it feels like Klopp and Lindas we're, were watching clips of Brighton all week and just growing in admiration for what they're doing. And then as a result of that, you almost turn up a little bit nervy of, of being embar- embarrassed mm. by them, to an extent. Um, so I thought it was insistent. I thought we'd go in there and really try to press them into the ground, like in like Klopp 2.0, revitalised, much like much younger age of the squad. But we, we didn't really, I felt, we were kind of a bit calculating in the way we were doing it to ensure that even if we don't regain the ball, we don't get opened up as, a, yes. as, the, as the first priority.
0: Yeah, I think it was trying to do it by maintaining that compactness, and so I think that's why it, well, obviously we obviously were mentioned the diamond. That's where it came in. But also other things I noticed, like um, the way that Virgil was so keen to come into midfield. Any time the ball got anywhere near Jao Pedro, mm. he wanted Jao Pedro to feel his breath on his neck for ninety minutes, and he probably did until he came off. And again, that comes to squeeze the centre of the pitch. And so, unlike you, I thought that we were going to be more intense about it. But it was almost like it felt like we were trying to pick the moments. It also felt like, and this is something that we might see, particularly at the start of the season, where everyone's getting used to it. Some of the players felt like they were trying to, they had too many things to think about at the time. It was less an instinctive see ball, attack ball, win ball. It was more like, well, okay, he's got the ball there, but okay, I can't go over that side because then he'll do that. So it was almost like they were kind of being more cautious about it because... It's like, okay, I've got to think of this, and think of this, and think of this at all times. And the times we were able to simplify it, like there was a few times when we got overloads over on the right side. We got Diaz coming from the left over to the right side to create like a little net. And when we were able to do that and pin them in there, that's where it really started to work. And again, you can see the benefits of what we were trying to do. But I'm like you, I think that we probably could have upped the intensity a little bit, particularly when the second half changed.
1: Yeah, as I said, it felt like the first priority was to not get opened up, and the second priority maybe was to regain the ball. And mm. I think usually we're a little bit reversed on that with the view of, if we do get opened up, Virgil will just deal with it. Yeah. But I think this time around, because we were conscious of Brighton being so good at it. And I've got so many players
0: up, up top that you've got to, that you've got to deal with at once. I think we were a bit more conscious of that. Um, the other it, thing about it as well, I think, and you got to see it a couple of times when it did break down, Because of the way we were trying to overload on the right side, you ended up having like Joel Matic really far on the right-hand side, Mo Salah really far on the right-hand side further up, and then you'd have Harvey Elliott to drift over to kind of create a wall pass when they were trying to come out. So you had these guys over close, and it worked, and it was great. But then, if you got out past Harvey, and if McAllister had come up, he had a lot of space to cover. And he's not the quickest, yeah. and Harvey's not the quickest. And there was a couple of times in that first half where both Harvey and McAllister had to turn and run back to their own goal. And you could literally see on their faces, it was just a bit like, <sighs> did not really want to be doing this. And maybe that's why Klopp was so cautious, because he knows that of his three midfielders, he's got two of them who, let's face it, aren't the quickest. But we'll come to that in a little bit.
1: Well, that was, what, that was one of the things I was conscious about going into the games, to be honest. I was, I was a bit surprised he selected Elliott. If I'm honest, to start. Mainly because the guy who's just come out is Curtis Jones and he plays on the left and he's right footed and Elliot plays on the right and he's left footed. So to accommodate Elliot, you're moving Soboslai which we had to do. Mm. So I didn't think Klopp would go through that change. I thought he would keep Soboslai where he is and maybe either bring in an endo for McAllister and move McAllister forward or take out Jones for Gavinberg as a straight swap. Yeah. Um but he didn't do either, surprised us a little bit and, one of the concerns I did have about that was just was what you just said, the recovery pace a little bit, of if you look at that as a three, you've got one absolute marathon man and you've got two lads who, once they are bypassed, they're out the game. Yeah. So to have two like that, I thought was a bit of a risk, but the way in which we stayed compact, it didn't hurt as much. I can't think of many opportunities where Brighton where where our, our back four was exposed mm. with a man running arrows. I, I think there was one moment where Belabour was doing that. He had a shot from outside the box. But other than that, I, can't, I really can't think of many
0: opportunities where we were opened up and, and that's a massive positive compared to the last time we were there. Yeah, and I think, again, because of lo- like you say, what happened last time and the way that we suspected Brighton were going to attack us, that was higher up the priority list than it would have been normally. And yeah, I'm like you, I probably would have done a straight swap with Gravenberg. But again, I don't know whether or not Klopp had already decided, that he wanted to do this diamond and he wanted Sobber's like as close to the forwards as he can get, so and therefore the midfield's going to look different anyway, or whether or not it was one that precipitated the other. The difference between the, the lack of personnel available and how much that it takes the tactics on vice versa. I think that's something that you see a lot with Liverpool, that there are times when, when, when we decide on a tactic, whether it's for a team or whether it's for a run of games, we're almost as if to say okay this is the tactics and whatever players we've got can come in and do jobs here and there and sometimes you get into situations where you're looking at the tactics and you're looking at the personnel on the pitch and thinking we aren't getting the best out of them there are ways that like with these particular players this is not the best way to go. And I think that kind of came up a couple of times against Brighton where, particularly in the second half, where suddenly they were able to get out wide and get balls in behind full-backs, particularly when Gomez came on. And yeah. they kind of did what I was hoping we would do to them. Like, if you remember last week, we talked about having a front five up against them to kind of stretch yeah. them and stop um, their, their attacking players having to get so much time on the break. Well, they kind of did that to us. <laughs> and it really worked. <laughs> Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel.
1: Well, I think, I think the big kind of like analysing Anfield talking point from the game is obviously the diamond. Yes. I think that was interesting. Um, I'm annoyed that we didn't touch on it last week because we used the diamond last time we went there. Um, but at the time, because we got hammered 3 0, I thought it would get scrapped. Yeah. So I thought it was really interesting that we turned up again with a diamond. And I thought that was kind of a bit of a signal, a bit of an indicator from Klopp's side, saying, listen, that plan last season was good. We're reusing that plan. The problem was the players executing the plan, specifically in the midfield. At the time, we had Thiago as a number 10, mm. which makes me stomach <laughs> <killing> <laughs> <now>. <laughs> um, We had Ox in the team, Henderson as the two-eighths, and then the six was Fabinho. Average age of that of that four I think it's just over 29, 30 something like that Yeah. Um, this time around in the diamond we had McAllister at the base Samoslai at the tip and the two eights the two eights believe it or not was Harvey Elliott and, and Lewis Diaz, Diaz. Yeah. that's very experimental but it was really interesting wasn't it
0: but this is the thing right you basically kind of laid out the problem because you said that Klopp is believer of this plan. Clearly he thinks that the diamond is the best way to stop what Brighton do. Yeah. And he was like, okay, well it didn't work last time because we didn't have the right personnel. So, are Harvey Elliott and Luis Diaz <laughs> gonna be better at attacking eights than Jordan Henderson and Alex say Chamberlain? Yeah. Like, I'm not sure they are. Yeah. So again, you think about, okay, Ryan Gravenberg. Like, if we're gonna play this way, mm. feels like it's kind of tailor-made for him to be one of them. Another thing as well is,
1: Gravenberg, Ajax, diamond, it just works, doesn't mm-hmm. it? When you think of a diamond shape,
0: you think of Ajax, mate, so he'll surely be really familiar with that shape. And when he did come on in the second half, he was playing slightly a different role. Like, he was in the left side, but his job was to kind of stay a little bit deeper for the most part. There were times when he was kind of freed up to overlap outside, but for the most part, it was about trying to hold that shape, and Klopp was still really worried about the breakthrough in the middle. So it was a slightly different way of doing it once he came on. So again, it feels like the tactics for that personnel, again, you maybe just swap them around a little bit. And mm-hmm. there was a moment in the game where I was thinking, OK, this is the Mac Ferrando type. This is where Mac's done his job there. He's done very well in terms of being able to recycle the ball because his passing percentage was actually still really high against yeah, in yeah. that game. But it's time you need a bit more energy in there. Um, Brighton were very clever And again, you said that you were guided You didn't mention the diamond I was going to mention Carlos Baleba last week Because Mm -hmm. this is what Brighton do, right? They wait until Liverpool arrive And then they unleash this secret weapon Yeah, he was very good He was very good They did the same thing with Enoch Marepo It was his very first Premier League start Against Liverpool at Anfield And he impressed really, really I, I remember going away from that game thinking This kid's going to be a star. Unfortunately, uh, he had a heart problem, so he had to retire. But they did it again. This was Balaba's first Premier League start. And I looked at them in midweek, and when I saw he didn't play one minute... I knew this was coming. I <laughs> yeah. knew this was coming because he's, he's literally saved his legs for this specific well, I, game. I, I was
1: going to say then, to be fair, you could tell that he'd had the week off. Yeah. Because he, he absolutely covered ground like it was not Exactly. Um, looks like a good player. And Zerbi should that's the game. He's a great replacement for yes. And uh,
0: Which is which not an easy player to replace. No. And I mean, this is the thing where people always say, how do Brighton do it? How do they do it? Well, what they do is they take a risk on players. Because I looked at Baleba when he was at Lille, when we were obviously scouring the world for defensive midfielders. He was mm. one I looked at. And I thought, he's got, he's got some of the goods. Like he, he, He's aggressive in the tackle and he's very good at, when he gets the ball, playing it simple. But he's still raw, he still comes out of position loads. Like they were able to get in behind him loads. He's ill-disciplined and all those kind of things. So you think, probably not the kind of guy for Liverpool. What does he do? He goes to Brighton. <laughs> and what did Brighton do? They let him sit there and watch for six weeks or so, get into grips with what they want to do, and then they unleash him. They have the time and the patience to do that. We don't. And that's the difference. Yeah. He looks tailor-made for the Premier League. He looks really physical. Um, As I said,
1: he can cover ground really easily Mm -hmm. and he looks quite technical as well. So he's definitely one to watch, but... Yeah, in terms of the diamond, I mean, for our YouTube viewers maybe we can get up a graphic now, we'll have a way with production after the after the show for that, but obviously that's the kind of Yeah the, that's the way in which we I'm showing sure, Mo now the diamond that we used and I think it was interesting in terms of why Klopp used that because it, it allowed us to do certain things. I mean if you, if you think of Brighton now and the way in which they play, it's very like it's very progression through the centre. Yes. With with the Zerby. It's very like um one twos, little cute passes round the corner, five yard passes. Um, and it's 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 kind of you know the, the centre backs attract the press and then they just play around you really but using the centre of the pitch so if you're using the diamond, you kind of cover the middle of the park get that get that kind of blocked almost yes um and overloaded, and almost force them down the flanks. A few teams have done this. Liverpool obviously did it last season. Man United did it a couple of weeks back, but they got hammered on the back of it. Didn't really do it particularly well. No. Um, and obviously you mentioned Van Dijk earlier as well. One thing I think was interesting with this diamond was because we had the the, the makeup of the midfield like that. Brighton play with two strikers really. One plays as a ten, but they play with two strikers in yes. Joe Pezzo and um, Evan Ferguson. So. With McAllister, Van Dijk, and Matip, we, we we kind of got an overload on on the two of them. Van Dijk, as you say, every time Pedro went in, Van Dijk went with him. It was like a man marking job. Yeah. But because of the way in which that worked out, that, that then allowed us to go basically man marking with Matoma and Adingra, is he? Yeah, on the yeah. opposite side with Robertson and Trent. Um. So as a, as a kind of pressing structure, I liked it. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it did make plenty of sense and. If, felt weird initially because the last time we used it we got battered but this time around I think tactically as a chessboard thing
0: you could see the logic with it. Yeah and the beauty of the overload as you mentioned when you've got Mac and the two centre-halves is that it allows Virgil to go in and more often than not Virgil's good enough to go in there and win the ball and if he wins the ball he's got McAllister five yards away who can then see the picture in front of him and see which pass he needs to play and execute it. If it's not, he doesn't win it straight away, then there's a second ball there, and he's still favourite to go in there and pick it up. And what we saw was there was quite a few times where Mac was able to turn in and around the centre circle and drive forward, and then we were able to get runners going off him. And that's kind of the, that's that's the key to the plan. And then you had situations where, as I mentioned before, sometimes Diaz would come over from one side and overload the other side. So. We would look to progress the ball down the right-hand side to Salah, sometimes even get Allison up into the build-up play, so he's basically standing alongside the centre-halves, allows everyone to shift over. Then, if we don't create a chance out of that, if they win the ball back, we're already in that kind of position. So if they then win the ball back, they can't come straight through us. They've got to kind of go that way or try and go over the top to the wide. And for a while, it did work. But the problem with that is that it requires a lot of discipline from everybody involved. And particularly, as we were saying before, when you've got guys who are forwards who are playing as eights, that natural instinct to be a forward is always going to take over. So there's going to be times when they're maybe going to try and steal a few extra yards here and there, and then suddenly the space gets a little bit too big. And as we mentioned before, when you've got Mac and you're asking him to cover a lot of ground left and right, he's not as good. Like We'll probably talk a little bit more when we go on about Mac and about the difference between Doing that position when he's got Moses Caicedo next to him. Yeah. And doing that position when he's got a range of either Virgil or Trent or whoever it is as his double pivot partner. I think I think the time he looked the best in that position was when he actually had Endo next to him. And again, if you think about the makeup of what Endo does on the pitch and the makeup of what Caicedo was doing with them, it's probably the closest. Yeah. Analysing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. I mean, you
1: mentioned Diaz there. I think I actually think if you look at the, the makeup of the system and what we acquired from that player in the game, like Diaz was, it was still four three three in attack. Liverpool still played the same way in attack, really. But defensively, that was when we adopted the diamond. But if you think of what that involves, that involves the player being a wide forward with the ball and without the ball, he has to be an eight. I think Gapo would have played. I think Gakpo would have started in that <laughs> role, but he didn't because he was suspended. Yeah, wrongly suspended. Yeah. So very frustrating. But that was why we ended up seeing Diaz as a as a midfielder, which is you know. Well, I mean, no, Gakpo was injured,
0: isn't he? So i oh, sorry.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I think Jota would have also played. Sorry, um, as as Nunes, in this game, just simply because of the pressing thing, and I think Gakpo would have played as Diaz, and I think Diaz and Nunes would have been on the bench, with a view to coming on 60 minutes. Mm-hmm and maybe
0: winning the game for us. I definitely think we missed Diego Jossard. Like, yeah. if you think about the role he's played for Liverpool so far, like I mentioned it last week, he's kind of the closer. He's the guy who comes in in the last five minutes when it's been a bit close and we need to hold on to a lead. He scores the second goal or the the the, the, the clinching goal. We could have done with that. Yeah. Like, and there was a period, a good period where at 2-1, where we did create a few chances, obviously, Gravenberg hits the bar, but there's a few other opportunities we got in. And I just think that with Jota, his instincts, are he's able to kind of... Sometimes it takes him about five or ten minutes to get up to the temperature of a game. But once he's up to it, mm. then he finds the gaps and he finds the places to be for the ball to fall to him in a way that like, no one else in the team does. And that's how he's able to get those chances. And when you think about the way that the game went with Brighton, obviously to get more encouragement from their equaliser... And then, as I said before, imposing their will on us and playing with five up. If you've got someone like Jota who's still uh, in the attacking spaces, they have to honour him because they know that he's intelligent and we still had pace on, on the pitch. So if he is in space, then he can go and deliver. So it just makes their job a little bit harder if they're having to worry about what we're doing. Whereas I felt like all of our changes were reactive. Like Matip for Karate, that was clearly a pre planned. Like we talked about it last yeah, week yeah. about the idea of massive playing that many 90s is not the plan. So yeah. when you can change, I think your... the Trent one was look, look pre-planned as well. Didn't yeah, Trent it come did. Off? And and again, normally it wouldn't have been such an issue, but unfortunately, as we said a couple of weeks ago, with Joe Gomez, he when he's look. good, he's very good. Yeah. When he's bad, it's just you he just is. got to basically frost your fingers and hope for the best. And. He did not have his greatest cameo. No, I think it's it fair a, to say, a terrible cameo. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> understatement. Yeah, but you, you mentioned McAllister
1: there. I think he's an obvious talking point from the game. I think your favourite podcast has probably already talked about this. Um, it's a popular talking point in the Liverpool fan base at the minute. But what's the Alan take on this, Mo? What? What? Because I think everyone's getting a bit carried away, uh,
0: as usual. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my instinct straight away. From looking at the game, if you think about the beginning of the Wolves game, and then if you think about this game, and even a little bit of the game in midweek, there are question marks around McAllister playing as the deepest player. And I think the question marks are based around the traps that other teams are setting for him. So that means that when he's receiving the ball from either centre-backs or goalkeeper, they are using that as a trigger to press, and then he's finding himself swamped. That's literally what happens for Brighton's first goal. Now, there are ways around that. The way that we chose to get around it was in the second half, it was Gravenberg who was picking the ball up, who's a lot bigger and stronger and can deal with those kind of situations. Previously, we've had Curtis Jones doing it, same thing. Uh, When we tried Trent doing it, that didn't work either. Mm -hmm. He got caught at Bournemouth in exactly the same way. So, you've got, if we want to play the diamond, we want to have either one of Mac or Trent as the more deeper guy they're gonna have to learn how to do that. In the meantime, we're gonna have to find ways around it. And I think, again, we saw enough evidence in this game as to why we want McAllister as the deepest midfielder. I mentioned when you've got the ball winning, if you're winning the ball in and around the center circle and you've got a guy like him who can see passes straight away, it's fantastic. I think physicality is an issue though. Yeah. And I don't know what it is, right? For some reason, whenever we decided who was playing the six, we're like, Oh, he's at the six, it's fine, everyone else go off. You do know what? We're we're always, always asking the guy to do that job a lot. Yeah, yeah, And it feels like we we can we don't have to do that. Like and there are times when you can look at a plan and say, Okay, with these personnel, this plan looks fantastic. Mm. If you just change two of this personnel, suddenly it looks very different. Yeah. And how much of it is we're still early, we're still trying to teach everyone to do it, so you're like, I want to put them in as many different situations and see how they react. But sometimes it's like, look, without Curtis Jones, it's a lot harder job. Mm. It's a lot harder job because you really get to see how much covering and how many fail-safes they are with him in the side. And then you take him out, it becomes a lot harder job.
1: Yeah, it's an assistance at one point. Um... For me, I, I think it's been absolutely, entirely predictable. Um, exactly the way he's performed, the good and the bad, and the criticisms he's getting so far. I think it was so obvious to see that this was going to happen. Not in a bad way or a good way, really. Just, I think it was just so predictable. Um, in the summer, we talked about this as a as a possible idea, because the, the ongoing narrative on, on Twitter and things like that was like, McAllister can play as a six. And when people say this be really careful when you say that because people said that about Gra- Gravenberg as well what do you mean when you say that because what, just because a player has played as part of a two doesn't mean he can play as a six mm. because McAllister was always going to have to play if he was going to play as a two for Liverpool that means when Liverpool didn't have possession he was going to be a lone six yep. and that was always my concern I always said as a two if you're playing an actual two all the time like a 4-2-3-1 with and without the ball fine but if at times he is a situational lone six he will get exposed he will be chasing shadows he will look a bit like Fabinho at times because he's not the quickest and and, you know he hasn't got the anticipation maybe of Fabinho in the defensive sense he's a bit more of an attack and creative player so I think we've got exactly what we expected in terms of like with the ball we've got positives from him and he's he's even set up the odd goal with like the Nunes volley and things like that but without the ball, I think he's been good. By the way, you know, without the ball. But the, I think one of the issues is when he's beaten, he's out the game. And if he tries something, this is the crucial part as well. I think if he tries something on the ball, which is it's in his nature to try mm. things because it's the type of player he is. If he loses the ball, then last season, Casado with Dennis extinguished yeah. the fire now if he tries something in that deep area and it doesn't come off he knows it's my responsibility to regain this immediately and he gives away a foul yeah and he's i think he's third in the league at the minute for fouls paying 90. um he's got four yellow cards already um one away from a suspension and that i think a lot of those have been
0: desperate attempts to recover a situation. Yeah, and I think that's it. It's not just the, the number, it's how they've come about. Because again, I think you if you look at most teams, you're going to expect the guy who plays the most um, defensive or the, the deepest midfielder is the most likely to commit fouls and pick up yellow cards. But it's the nature of them and the fact that they're all so similar and they're all because, like you say, he's been caught out. And the Caicedo... Um, Uh, Example is is really uh, applicable because, for starters, Caicedo's probably looking (laughs) like he's probably missing Mac a little bit as well. Mm. If you think about the way that Chelsea have been playing, and you can also see why Klopp was trying to get them both together. Yeah, yeah. Because if you get them both together, then wolf. Yeah. But the way that Brian were able to do it with someone like Caicedo, we have the ability to do that. But it's like I said, you have to look at the makeup. So if you're gonna play with him as the the, the deepest player, because you're right, playing as the six is not the same. So you have different kinds of six. You have the deep lying six, your Thiago six, your Xavi Alonso six. But then you have your your, your Biter six, your Caicedo six, your Mascherano six your lone six, your double six. Yeah, yeah. and that's the thing, is so that if you're going to play as the playmaker as the deepest guy, you need to have a screener who's going to be, he can't be too detached. Mm. And so if we're going to have Mac as this deep line playmaker, it makes sense to have guys in and around him who have the aggression and the energy. So if Mac is a six, I kind of want any two of Gravenberg, Jones, Zobzlai as the other two midfielders. Yeah. Like, yeah. That works, because then you're, what you're doing is, is you're hiding the weaknesses of that system and then you're maximising the strengths, yeah. which is basically what everyone's trying to do in all football games. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, that, what you've just said there, the pick shades of, of
1: Fabinho last season, really, in terms of we got to a point with Fabinho where the weaknesses that we'd been masking for years by surrounding him with marathon men, we were suddenly surrounding him with pensioners. And he looked... <laughs> suddenly like he was shattered and he couldn't yeah. cover the ground it's because of the lads he's with so yeah I think McAllister for me he's absolutely fine I think he's still a great sign and I think he's going to be a great player for Liverpool no issues regarding all that whether his future is as a six mm. there's, a, there's a question mark there depending on the system and I think in 18 months time is he still in
0: that spot I don't think so or I mean, for, for me, for me, I think it's one of those things where I wouldn't have him in that spot week-in, week-out, game-in, game-out. I think you could say that over the course of a season he's going to play there more than other places, that's fine. But with the caveat of who else is in and around him. But then there's certain opponents where I feel like maybe you can take a little bit more leeway. So if you're looking at a midfield at home to Luton then you're definitely going to have a midfield that's different than a home to Manchester City, for mm. example. Yeah. So you can take more liberties in certain games, and I feel like that's where we're going to end up with Mac as the deepest line midfielder, is in a little bit more horses for courses in terms of who we're playing and who he's playing alongside. Yeah. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel.
1: I think he's... Um... It's an insistent one with him.
0: You know, I think he, I don't think he's as much of a talking point as people are making out. He's doing a better job, I think, at it. I think what we are doing is we're focusing on the moments where it goes wrong. Partly because, you know, we saw a lot of that last season and every mm. time we see that it's just like a big red flag. But also because those moments tend to be more noticeable because they lead to shots or goals. Yeah. And so when you're the defensive midfielder and you make a mistake it's like a goalkeeper more often than not it leads to a shot on goal or a chance so they are going to stick in your head more but we have to remember every single central midfielder has a risk and reward in their game and it's just that what at the moment we're not mitigating the risk and reward that he's having to deal with in a way that we could be but i say again i stress again this is still Relatively early in the season, Kropp is still figuring things out, and it's almost as if he's trying things to see if it works, but if it doesn't work, then he's kind of learnt something as well. Yeah. So maybe he can take that on to the next game. Yeah, I
1: mean, it's worth pointing out there that, like, you know, when we look at defensive numbers on this show, it, it tends to just be tackles and interceptions. Um, and if you look at that former Macalester so far this season, he's sixth in the league mm-hmm. for midfielders, uh, tackles and interceptions per 90. If you have a guess who's top long-term listeners of the show should know, it's Pellinia again, <laughs> yeah. uh, by a mile.
0: And he didn't even start the season oh, either. No,
1: no. Um, he's only played about 5.3, five, 5. 490s or something like that. But that's just enough to be counted in the sample mm. that he used. Um, Pellinia's on the top, but McAllister's sixth. More tackles, interceptions at the minute than on Rice, yeah. which is quite surprising for me. And I
0: mean, he he was involved in twelve duels and he won fifty percent of them against mm. Brighton. And yeah. again, like I feel like fifty percent duels that's a decent number. But then when you add in the fact that he's doing twelve in a game, yeah, then that kind of really tells you that yeah. He, he, I mean he is having to put himself about, probably the way that... Yeah. Uh, and th- this is the other thing about the whole conversation around him playing a six. There are times on the pitch where you look at his face and you feel like, you're not enjoying this. Yeah, we? yeah. <laughs> you can tell he's the kind of... He's a city player, I think. He's a Man City,
1: Guardiola tempo player, as mm. in everything's super slow. And you can tell when the game ramps up a little bit, he, he, he gets flushed in his face and things like that. He looks shattered. You know, the game after the uh, the jet lag against Wolves, he looked knackered. Yeah. So, He's not that kind of player, he's a, he's a, he's a head in his, in his mind, he's a head in his brain. But when it comes to the physical edge,
0: he lets the ball do the running for him. Yeah. You know, he's not that. And plenty of elite players have made that work for years and yeah. that he's no different. The other thing I want to put into the mix about him, particularly this week, and some players, this, this won't be a problem, some will, he's a very shy character. You can definitely tell that he's a very shy character yeah. around. It was something that Brian even said before he, he joined us the attention he's had over the last week, playing against his brother, playing against his former club, yeah. literally being the guy who, in front of everyone, the guy who all the articles are it's about. about. Yeah, and I mean, I, I was watching him do his interview post-match after, with Union, with his brother, and it was just like, he's answered all of these questions like 50 times, because I've yeah, seen yeah. about 50 <laughs> different people asking these questions. It's just like, all of that extra emotional energy when you're in a situation like he is, where he's got a lot to think about, he's got a lot to worry about, and all that kind of thing, and then the extra spotlight that's on him already, that he would have known going into Brighton, the spotlight was going to be on him. Like, I don't think it's a situation where he was thinking, oh, I'm worried about my reception. He knew he was going to get a good reception that he did. But he also knew that everyone was going to be jumping on him. He also knew that he's playing against guys you know very well. So any kind of little extra things, tips and tricks about the way he plays, the way he wants to do things, they're going to have all that extra knowledge. And all of those things add into pressure. It doesn't affect every player, but I think when you're as introverted a character as him, it probably is going to affect him a bit. Yeah, I think for me, even if he was doing worse than he currently is, for me he gets a free pass,
1: just simply because of the role that he's occupying and how it's not really suited to his strengths and weaknesses. But despite that anyway, I would still have him in the team over Endo. Um, There's been a a a bit of talk about that. I would still personally have McAllister in there, and I think although he's not a six, alone six. I think he, the crucial thing with replacing Fabinho, we needed a player, in my opinion, who was a holding player, a player mm. who would hold <coughs> and, and not someone who didn't want to be box to box all day. And if you think of Gravenberg, Jones, Sobosly, they, they all want to run vertical in vertical straight lines and that. And McAllister is a bit more inclined to stay and, and hold the fort, even if he's not defensive minded particularly. So, I, I think he suits the role to an extent enough for us to kind of get to maybe January where Andre comes in. I think Andre mm. would be a player who, who would maybe take that spot. So maybe not immediately, but over time.
0: And then maybe McAllister becomes an eight then. But it's an interesting. I mean, I do think that if we're going to be playing Mac there, I do think that there's a scope to see the two of them together. I think if you, if you ask Mac who's going to be the, a double pivot partner that's closest to what he's used to, Zendo, I think but then diff- Endo would be as a right back. At well, times. well, yes, that's the issue. Yes, maybe. But then, if we if we're doing yeah. the inverted fullback and we're pulling one of our centre backs out wide, then there's going to be cover behind him yeah. in that situation. So, like for example, if it's obviously it's probably easier for Canate yeah. than if it's Matip. I mean, I was still a little bit nervous of Matip being so far against the touchline. Yeah. But <laughs> there again, with that system, there's a fail safe into it. And the key is is that. If you have Endo in there as the winner, connected to Mac, and they're able to kind of move as a pair and dictate around the pitch, then you're mitigating. You're putting out some of the fires over there before they're reaching that point. Yeah. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel.
1: It's one to keep an eye on. Um, but I don't think he's, any, he's been anywhere near as problematic as people are making out. And I think sometimes he's just made to look bad when he's beaten and he's kind of out the game because his recovery
0: place isn't great. But other than that, I think he's doing quite well. Also, we, we've kind of only not won three games all season. I should probably point that out <laughs> yeah. as well. That's a good point, That's a good point. And the one that we did lose, well, we all know about that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
1: definitely. Um, but yeah, the Brighton game, I, th- I think at, after it, I was a little bit frustrated, but I think looking back, it was a it was a decent point mm-hmm. and um, it was as fair as a result as you get and I think both sides posted the next year of two point three, which is interesting. That's a, a, a two all or I've ever yeah, seen one. Exactly. So yeah, we, we move on from that and um, obviously we're currently in fourth. I think we are. Um, Spurs are joint top with Arsenal. Um, so if we look at the Premier League as a whole, is there any? But we'll start with the the top of the Premier League first. Is there anything overwhelming for you that surprised you
0: more than anything, maybe? Um, Kind of. I think I've been surprised by Spurs' ability to dig out results Mm. when they aren't at their best. That's something that I thought would only come in the second half of the season. I thought they'd be able to get some points and the the, the positivity in the new system would kind of aid them so they'd get, they'd get a few 3 nils, a few 4 nils. I didn't think they'd get as many one nils and 2-1s as they're getting. Yeah. So that surprised me. Um, I've not been su- as surprised with Arsenal. I suspected that Arteta would try to start tinkering with things. <laughs> yeah. And whether or not it helps them or not in the short term, he sees the long-term vision and he's a better manager than I, so maybe we'll see. Um, and yeah, maybe I expected Chelsea to get it together by now. But outside of that, no, everyone's kind of where I thought they'd be. Yeah, it's it's
1: really insistent looking at the table. I think Spares, I did think that they'd come on. And I think Buster Coglu was going to surprise a lot of people. I didn't think they'd be top. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, <coughs> but they have had the easiest fixtures. They have. Uh, so that that's one to definitely factor in there. And, I don't think they'll still be there, for example, at like Christmas. you know, I no. think they'll be top
0: four this season, though. I do think they'll finish top four. They will certainly be in the mix. And they've got a lot of things in their favour in terms of, obviously, they're not in European football, so they'll have more time to plan. they won't get into a situation where they're having to play three games in a week back-to-back, which is something which a lot of the other teams in and around probably will do if they're still in European competition. So there's that in their favour. I do think this is still a very new team mm. and there aren't very many players in that squad, in that team, who are used to playing at the top of the league we uh, year in, year out. And so when it gets tight towards the end of the season, that might come into it. And we haven't really seen the situation now yet where you think, look at it and you think yeah, they could have done with Harry Kane in that game. <laughs> yeah. And that's going to come. Because <laughs> like you don't have someone as dominant in a team as that and take him out and it's just fine forever. Like, It's just... You might get a bit of a short-term bump, but there's going to come a point when they're like, yeah, we could have done with him here. And that's coming. But again, I feel like there are certain teams that are going to get better as the season goes on. Like Aston Villa, who've started well. I do think that, again, they're one that... They will get better as the season goes on. Newcastle have started to get themselves together again. So I think that they're going to go on a decent run between now and Christmas time. Obviously, they'd start brilliantly in the Champions League, yeah. which, again, I, I was... They were, I'm a, they were very fortunate against Milano. No? They were, but then you've got to ride your luck sometimes. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I think that the other thing we need to remember is that as painful as it is to watch Newcastle do well in the Champions League, it's actually a benefit to us. Yeah. Because <laughs> the way that the UEFA coefficient goes, the two best performing countries get an extra place in the Champions League. Yeah. And if they do well, then the chances are the fifth becomes a Champions League place this, this season. Mm. So yeah. Go and on. if they go deep, it means they've got more to worry about rather than Premier League football. Exactly. So But I
1: think Manchester City are an interesting talking point because I must be honest, when I seen the fixtures first eight games, I thought they would be top. And I thought to an extent, we had looked at our fixtures and thought we just need to have to be roughly within touching distance. We're one point behind them, and mm-hmm. they've had a much easier start than us. And if you look at the numbers as well, th- they are interesting. Like, it's very early to be doing this, it's too early to be doing this, to be honest. But for shots, well, City have been known for their attack, obviously, it's the Guardiola team, Erling Haaland up front, and all this. For shots per 90, shots per match or whatever. They are fourth in the Premier League mm. for that. And in terms of expected goals, per 90, uh, excluding penalties, eighth. This is a Manchester City team that haven't really start got going yet. No. Uh, they've got a few injuries, to be fair to them. I was
0: just going to say, it's funny because normally... We don't even really think about that with Manchester City because you think, OK, well, they've always got a great other player to be off the bench and come in. Mm. And to be fair, you look at the introduction of Jeremy Doku and he already looks like a guy who's going to be really useful for them and really productive for them. But the simple fact of the matter is, is that as good as their squad is, as great as they are, they don't have another Kevin De Bruyne and they don't have another Rodri. Yeah, And well, you could argue they don't even have another Gundogan. No, at the minute, and to be missing all three of those at the same time it's always going to have an effect and when you've got a guy like Haaland who is so good at being the finishing point but you're not I mean you can ask him to get involved in the build up play and bring him into midfield but you are kind of losing some of what he's good at so you're kind of sacrificing another player in and around it already from a team who are used to playing as a false nine so everybody is technically a midfielder so you're taking the three dominant midfielders out you're losing one in terms of numbers when you've got a guy so high up the pitch. And suddenly, the teams are able to deal with him in midfield. Like I think of the West Ham game and how comfortably Paquitar and um, Ward-Prowse were able to get on the ball, uh, and Alvarez was uh, playing in that game as well, how comfortably they were able to get on the ball in space and turn and go towards Man City's goal. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing you're not normally meant to be able to do. So whether or not... Um, They'll start to get players back, and then suddenly they'll look like themselves again. They have proven how do, how reliant even the best team are on a certain couple of individuals. Yeah, well, they, they still have the comfortably the best
1: defence in the league in terms of the underlying numbers, just in terms of shots faced, expected goals against, and things like that. But in just in terms of the attack, again, it's very very early for this. But in terms of the attack, it does look it doesn't look as threatening as mm-hmm. previous years and if you can, if you can kill the suppo- supply lines of Haaland maybe um, and place an emphasis on some of these new lads like a Kovacic or a Matthias Nunes, or even a Doku you know to kind of break the block which they haven't been accustomed to doing over the past couple of mm-hmm. years I like, I think Doku's from Rennes isn't he and yeah. uh, Matthias Nunes from Wolves obviously so it's one to keep an eye on but I still think with Guardiola in charge you're just you're guaranteed a minimum of 85 points anyway, so it'll, be, they will be up there. But I don't think it's early for me to say this, but I'm not
0: sure that they are as much of a given. Yeah, as, as it's, it years. is strange because it's almost like if you look at it from their point of view and you look at the opponents they're up against, with all due respect, like the Arsenal and Liverpool and Spurs of this season are nowhere near as good challengers as the Liverpool of 18 19, 19 20. Uh, and even, to say, a little bit of the uh, 21-22 as well. So City themselves don't have to be as high. Like, they know that. Whether or not they'll admit it openly, they know that. Subconsciously, they know that. They don't have to be at those heights. And this is already coming off a season where they had to be so good for so long in order to win the treble. So the idea of there being at least a subconscious mental drop-off or an easing-off at least in the beginning of the season, you can kind of see where that would come from. But again, like you say, this is all relative. We're not saying that they're going to fall off a cliff. No, no, no. I think it's insistent as well. I've just noticed Arsenal um, in
1: attack 12th for expected goals per 90 per match. So that's that's really insistent as well. That's one to keep an eye on. Uh, That's one thing that Liverpool definitely have. Liverpool definitely have a firing attack and, and we are Fifth by these numbers, Mm. which is we would be top if without the red cards. Yeah, You know, the red cards are the reason we aren't top, basically. So that's one to keep an eye on. Um, And we'll round up this week's episode by talking about Man United. Because why
0: not? (laughs) (laughs) Make everyone feel a little bit better about themselves, why not? (laughs) Yeah, well, I
1: think going into the season, to be fair, I think we tipped them to, to do all right. Largely because they'd upgraded the goalkeeping department to a player who could kick the ball. But for whatever reason, he's collapsed in terms of his actual goalkeeping. Mm. Believe me, he is not as bad no, he's as not. he's looked. No. So I don't know what is happening to him. It's, I mean, Gary Neville, to be fair, touches on this, doesn't he? Gary Neville always says, like, it's the most pressurised position in England and that. And it feels like he's a bit Man United biased with it.
0: But I don't know what Anana's doing lately. Like, he looks like a shambles mate, really, to be fair. Again, I feel like it's the, 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 the he's a very confident fella. And I did say before he came in that there were going to be times he was going to make mistakes, but the good thing about him is he is able to brush them off. However, in this environment, all mistakes are magnified. Now, obviously, playing for Inter Milan, Inter Milan's a massive club in Italy. There's going to be lots of scrutiny, lots of people on his back every time he makes a mistake. But even within that, that was in the context of them being a very good team, still winning most of their games, and still having a team that functions and a game plan that worked. So even when you had bad times, you could shake it off and say, we believe in the process. United don't have any of that. They yeah. are still searching for someone to come in, be really good, and save them. Mm. That's really what they're looking for. They want someone to come in and be like, oh, thank God we've got a really good player here now, then we can do everything. Because that's literally what happened last season yeah. with Casemiro. The problem was is that they got one year out of Casemiro. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I,
1: remember, I remember saying this at the time, you know, honestly, they're getting him in world class and all that, but he's, he was like 30 when he got him. You you're get an immediate impact sound, but then as the likes of Rashford improves, you know, all these Bruno Fernandes maybe improves a little bit, that's when Casemiro declines. Yeah. So you aren't all peaking together. So you're not going to win a league. So... But if you look at their current situation, it it is insistent. I mean, over the weekend, obviously, they found a way way to win, but it doesn't mean anything because they didn't deserve it. Um, They played with an entire team of right footers Uh, Luke Shaw, Lisandro, both injured, and Anthony, I think, came on late in the game. Mm. So that is an insistent thing as to why they maybe suffered a little bit. I think Hoyland up front looks decent but he's adding a different dynamic, and I think he's maybe... I don't think he's overly benefiting Rashford at the minute. No, I going to Because both want to run in behind, and it's a bit like Nunes, maybe, with a uh, with lad
0: who also wants to run in behind, as opposed to... I think Rashford would benefit from Firmino, basically. The irony is, you know the guy who would really help Hoyland better than anyone in that Man United attack? Sancho. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's the guy who wants to go out wide and put the ball in, Early balls in to a striker. Hoyland wants to get in there, in amongst the centre backs. He wants to f- stretch the play. He wants to fight for balls in the f- in the in around the six yard box. I think if you've got those two playing together regularly in confident form, you start to see a better relationship. But unfortunately, for whatever reason, that doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime soon. And then again, it's about complementary football. Like we were saying with Liverpool, like we always say, if you've got players who are definitely going to play. And Man United have a few of those, if you think about Fernandes and you think about Hoyland and now you probably have to add Rashford into that mix. That means that everybody else has to do what you aren't getting from those players and I'm not sure they've got the personnel who can do that. Yeah. I mean, in a situation where even someone like Amrabat who you think would be able to go in there and help them, they're having to pay him a left back. Yeah, that's interesting. I think he did. He had a decent debut as well, but the second game,
1: it was just getting the offside line right and things like that was difficult with them and, and things but they are currently 10th Um they've conceded 12 goals which is more than anyone else in apart from brighton to be fair but they're, mm. they're not doing particularly
0: well and long may i continue yeah <laughs> and the beauty of it is i don't think i don't think that they're going to do anything in terms of removing ten Hag. no for at least six months at least like yeah. if we get to march and it still looks as messy as this and they're out of the competitions, then they will probably will start to think about it. But, yeah, between now and then, it's going to be his mess to deal with. Yeah, it's a, it's one to keep an eye on, and
1: we'll be back next week to preview the Merseyside derby, which, which should be a tasty one. Oh, yes. Um, but, yeah, thanks for tuning in this week, and we will see you then.
0: You've been listening to Analyse Nanfield from the Liverpool Echo's Blood Red channel.